Dean Hearn Chen, and you're listening to Southeast Asia, etc. This is a podcast about current events happening around the region, where I'll be speaking with my colleagues about the issues here. I started it because I wanted them to essentially just explain some things to me. The episode you're listening to right now is focused on Myanmar. I will be chatting with two people about a humanitarian crisis that has been dominating the news cycle. There are thousands of refugees entering Bangladesh every day. They cross the border of Myanmar, where the state military has launched a violent offensive against an ethnic minority group, the Rohingya. The Rohingya are a Muslim minority group living in Myanmar's northern Rakhine state. They're denied citizenship, so they're officially stateless despite having lived there for many generations. This also means that many basic rights, like freedom of movement or access to health care, is not something they have. For generations, this population has lived alongside the Rakhine people. The Rakhine are mostly Buddhists, and they are also an ethnic minority in Myanmar. There have been bouts of violence between the two groups over the years. Last August, the Myanmar army launched a military offensive in Rakhine state. This sparked an exodus of nearly 700,000 Rohingya who fled the country for Bangladesh. For the first part of this episode, I'm speaking with Verena Hotzel. She's a German reporter who's been working in Myanmar since February 2015. She has reported extensively on this issue both in Bangladesh and in Rakhine state. Yeah, the first time I, I actually really went was um, after the first ARSA attacks. So the first ARSA attacks happened in October 2016, mm-hmm. and I went to Rakhine State in December. Can you explain what ARSA is? ARSA stands for um, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. Mm-hmm. So these are Rohingya insurgents. The government calls them terrorists. Mm. Um, So it's a group of Rohingya who decided um, to take up arms to to defend themselves and and fight for the freedom of the Rohingya who have been persecuted for decades in Rakhine State who are trapped in camps that they are not allowed to leave or who have restricted access to education, um, to medical facilities to jobs and uh, yeah this insurgent group decided um, it was time to it was time to stand up for their rights by referring to violence mm-hmm. and and that triggered a very brutal backlash by the um, by the Myanmar military what is the what do you think the threat level was of this um, you mean terrorist the, group? Like, is it a big group or is it relatively small? I mean, do we know very clear information about this group? It's very hard, and they have become pretty much silent. They did communicate with the public, so there mm-hmm. were even like press releases. They were on Twitter. They released YouTube videos. <laughs> they got um, a good PR. PR people there. <laughs> For a couple of weeks they did and then um, they disappeared again. And, and also it's, um, yeah, it's, it's very hard to grasp who they are and how many people are involved and how dangerous they are and also the big question uh, in how far they are linked to international 
um, terrorist organizations like um, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. Um, so does the uh, Myanmar military, they see them as a high-level threat? Yeah, that's how they sell them to the public. I mean, that's that was their rhetoric from the start. Like, these... This group is linked to international terrorist organizations and they are attacking um, Rakhine State, they are attacking Myanmar and we are going to defend our country. And that's actually a narrative that um, has worked surprisingly well. I mean, I live here and I, I, can, I, I think I can say that there's only very, very little people who have not bought into this narrative. Mm-hmm. Has that translated into any challenges for you when you're reporting on this issue? It it has created... Like, you have these two very different narratives. You have the government and military narrative that these people are um, Muslim terrorists, and uh, you have the other narrative that is more focused on the refugees and um, the, the damage that this security operation did to innocent Rohingya who were not affiliated to um, this terrorist group. And that has created a very strong polarization on which international journalists are on the one side and big parts of Burmese society and the government and the military are on the other side. which by the way, has strengthened a lot the support for the military that they hated for for so long, um, which is a pretty weird plot twist, but interesting um, interesting to see. I feel like this is always missing in some of the international stories, Um, but why do the Burmese feel so strongly against the Rohingya? Is it just a religion thing, or a race thing, or a culture thing? Yeah, there's all these different theories uh, on that question, and um, supporters of the different theories like start to attack each other, <laughs> um, which is dumb because, in my opinion, it's it's not only not only one theory is um, justified. It's it's a it's a mix. It's a combination of um, factors. Yeah, I mean, these people are a religious minority in Myanmar. Also, Muslim people in Myanmar who are not Rohingya have a hard time. They are being discriminated. Many Burmese people would say that is not true, but um, in my experience, they oftentimes just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to apply a Burmese explanation now. Um, they they look different. That's what people would tell you a lot. Mm. Like these people look different. They have a darker skin. Um, mm. They they're women. They're covered by a veil and 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 this otherness, uh, as in in <laughs> all over the world, also creates anxiety among the Burmese and uh, a very strong argument why the Rohingya are so despised in Myanmar is that. Over the decades, Buddhist nationalists and the military managed to create this narrative that Buddhism and the Burmese nation, which are very closely linked, mm-hmm. are under threat. 
by the Islam. Also, you hear all kind of rubbish uh, <laughs> about the Rohingya, and uh, most of the time, when you when you dig and when you, you you talk to people, you would realize they've never even spoken to a Rohingya. They've never even seen uh, a Rohingya person. Yeah, we've talked about what happened in October 2016, and now we're coming to August 25th, 2017, and that was the big event. Can you? describe what happened? So what happened is that on August 25, Arsa attacked a couple of different military and police posts yeah. in Rakhine State. Mm -hmm. And for all those observers who have followed the situation, it was, it was clear what would happen. And everybody knew that this would trigger something really bad and that's indeed what happened. So um, the, the military launched what they call a, a security operation and um, the outcome is that now we have almost 700,000 new Rohingya refugees in camps in Bangladesh and according to um, MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, who did a study trying to find out how many people might have died in this um, security operation. They came, up, they came up with a number that was around 7,000 people. Mm. The problem is we don't really know what exactly happened because nobody is allowed in there. Humanitarian access has by now resumed in parts, but it's still um, more than frustrating. And human rights observers, journalists um, are not allowed in. Or I have to say we are now allowed in, but only under government surveillance. What has the international community's reaction to it been? Do you think it's strong enough or do you think they understand it? I mean, we're talking about something that might one day be labeled as a genocide. That's sure. what we are talking about right now. Um, what has the Aung San Suu Kyi-led government's reaction been to this sort of criticism? They resort a lot to what is a global problem. They make use of the very um, convenient concept of fake news. Uh, it's um, perpetrated by my president, Donald exactly. Trump. <laughs> it's all Trump's fault. <laughs> yeah, so they just blankly deny. Like they deny. They say they send. Um, they sent in their own investigators, and they, their judgment is that is not ethnic cleansing, and basically nothing major has happened. So. Now there's roughly 700,000 new Rohingya refugees in these camps across the Naf River in Bangladesh. Yeah, it went at the peak of the exodus um, in early September. So what happened after the military launched its security operation in Rakhine State is that Rohingya started to flee and um, they took boats, they swam, they walked over the border river over to Bangladesh. And I've never seen anything like that. I've been to the camps in Bangladesh before, a couple of months before. 
and it was already pretty bad. But what I saw in September was just mind-blowing. And I mean, I expected to see bad things, but like we, we just left, um, we just left uh, Cox's Bazaar where you have like infrastructure hotels and so on. And half an hour after leaving Cox's Bazaar, on the street you could see refugees. Or, I mean, at first I didn't even know these were Rohingya refugees. People were just standing by the side of the road, waiting for nothing. It was rainy season and they were just completely stranded and hopeless. After seeing all of that and reporting on it and talking to the people there about what happened to them, how, how was it going back to Yangon? <laughs> it was like going back to a different planet. Like <laughs> it felt like all that I've seen for all that I've seen during these two weeks in at the border in Bangladesh uh, has never happened. The people in the Burmese society in Yangon, they don't have a clue about... Oh yeah, I mean, while I was standing in the camps in Bangladesh, opening my Facebook feed, people were, you know, labeling what I and what others did as fake news. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just pretty much um, incredible. I mean, you can't even... You can't even... You don't even know what to say. Maybe it's also, maybe it's something that um, haunts me because I am German and like the generation of my grandparents has gone through something similar and like my generation is asking these questions like how the hell could you not see what happened in these concentration camps? Uh, why did you not ask questions? How, how was this possible? And so I found myself back in Myanmar asking the exact same questions to, mm-hmm. um, to, to Burmese people. And I was telling them, like, look, I've been there. Like, you call this fake news. Let's sit down and talk about it because I've seen it and I can't answer all your questions about it and um, and I'm actually also genuinely interested in what's going on in your head and and what's going on in 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 people's head is I mean different things like some people just really buy into the government and military propaganda the thing is that I've also spoken to people who didn't admit it to me, but I got the impression that they were suspicious of what the military is saying about this so-called security operation. But their problem is that they have signed up for unconditional, what they think is unconditional support of the Aung San Suu Kyi government, and that requires them to not speak out against it, because what is at stake is um, the democratic transition and there's people who have who have sacrificed their youth um, who have spent like decades in in prison who now finally want a better life and want democracy and they think this is only possible like the only solution for this is the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi and that is why they have to unconditionally trust and support her. But what really bothers me is that 
she lets the Burmese people run into this moral blindness. Like she, she doesn't give them a moral compass anymore. And that is what breaks my heart because at least I hope that one day people will kind of wake up and realize that something terrible has happened to a group of people in their country and it will not feel nice. Last December, two reporters from Reuters, Walon and Jossou, were arrested when they went to meet some police officers in Yangon. The reporters had been investigating the massacre of 10 Rohingya men in a village in Rakhine State. They were charged with violating the Official Secrets Act. In February, Reuters published a report that Walon and Jossou were working on. It featured interviews with Buddhist villagers who confessed to killing the Rohingya men and burying their bodies. They also had interviews that implicated members of the paramilitary police and the Myanmar army. After their trial on April 7th, Jossou, who is a Rakhine ethnic minority, said, quote, We want to investigate this because it is important for our country. If we can find the truth, then we can find the solution. I spoke with Min Zayau, an award-winning Burmese photographer. He worked with Reuters before going freelance. In 2012, there was the by-election, um, uh, the first time since long time ago that Aung San Suu Kyi, like, you know, going around campaigning in the country, like meeting all the people, uh, me and a few friends, we thought it's going to be historic. So mm-hmm. we just picked up the camera and followed the by-election campaign. And at the end of the campaign, I, I started stringing for Reuters. Um, and then, so I left, the, so I was studying medicine and I left the studies and I became full-time photojournalist with Reuters. Yeah. Min Zaya went to Rakhine State for the first time in 2012 to cover the riots that broke out after weeks of disputes between the Rohingya and Rakhine people. I was interested to see how he felt about his country's reaction to this crisis and also how his peers saw his work as a journalist. That's the first time I was exposed to this sort of thing. And like, you know, I also, you know, because I never, I've heard about like civil conflicts before, like in our country, but it was more like, you know, the military against the, you know, Kachin ethnic army or, you know, against the Shan or the Karan. Mm-hmm. But that, that was the first time I was like, I saw like ethnic groups fighting against ethnic groups. Did you, yeah. did you know very much about people's perception of the Rohingya minority before you went there? No, I mean, the only... Or did you yourself have any yeah. sort of perceptions of that? No, I mean, like before, to be honest, like before the very first um, crisis, most of us, like we never even really had off or like the Rohingya, mm-hmm. the term Rohingya or, you know, yeah. it's... Like we, we know, of course, that there's a lot of like Muslims in Rakhine State as well. and. And, you know, like, Myanmar has, like, 135 official uh, ethnic minorities. And, you know, that was the first time that, you know, we know that there's you know, this this group of people. Like, as soon as I heard about it, like, it's already, like, controversial. We, we live in a culture where Buddhist monks, especially in, like, rural areas and countrysides, are very, 
uh, influential among the general population yeah. who are mostly not very educated. Out of respect, like they always believe and you know follow whatever the monks say. So when the when some of these monks started spreading this sort of anti-Muslim sentiment, spread it like over the few years, mm-hmm. and then you know there would be a riot in a small town here, a small town there. Yeah, it was always like the same pattern when they where there is a small like street fight or you know an accident. The fight like gross. between like you know a, a Muslim and a Buddhist or you know the, and then it would like spread a rumor and then everybody would be angry there would be the angry mob and like they they would start raiding Muslim houses and uh, so when that was happening I I could see that the majority I mean many Buddhists many people like especially um, in countryside and in other parts of the country like you know started having that sort of anti-Muslim sentiment at the same time like you know many people in Yangon and and you know, educated people like you know, so they were realizing you know this is not right. You know, we're not mm. we're not anti-Muslim. You know, mm. Muslims are also from Myanmar, and like you know, they're also Myanmar Muslims. Yeah. So there was there was this divide. You know, my point is that I, I mean, the, it's not like people can people do and you know they they can and they do speak out about the anti-Muslim sentiment and saying that this is not good and all that. But it's just when it comes to the Rohingya issue. It's totally different. This is what I'm trying to say. It's like you know, the Rohingya issue. It's like many people think like, oh, this is like pure anti-Muslim. Thing. But I, I know that many people outside think you know that way. But it's not. It's not really that way. I think in um, in my opinion, like because um, you know, it's more the perception that people are prepared to believe that you know the Rohingya, the term Rohingya doesn't exist, and that these people are not from our country and they're originally from neighboring Bangladesh so people everywhere like you know already they have this belief that the Rohingya are not from Myanmar but still some people don't really accept violence against any person like you know even including the Rohingya majority and many people like you know uh, even though they don't accept the term Rohingya they will still have sympathy like you know the, uh, this was like before this 2017. So when the 2017 violence began, like many people like change perception and say, oh, you know, this can like create like you know terrorism in, mm-hmm. over there, and you know we really cannot like have like terrorists attacking our our land and our people. And then at the same time, I remember there was similar like Facebook statements from state councilor Facebook page, you know, saying that you know they're. Uh, these attacks by the you know terrorist group Asa, and and then you know everybody was all of a sudden like just became very angry with like all the Rohingya people. So it was and, almost like the Asa element made it yeah, more yeah, yeah. Um, like easy to yeah the to Ar- the Asa element and also the use of these words like you know terrorism, terrorism. and you know defending terrorism and okay. you know not defending our land defending. The, the word they like use is defending the western gate of the country you know western so gate yeah yeah so it's yeah I mean like that that was the worst ever I mean I, I was very like I was very sad with of course with the violence and you know I mean I was more sad with the way my people like you know my friends and my many of my friends and my yeah like people I've known like you know kind of like cheering when all these many people are being like you know persecuted that's 
That was the, the saddest part of the thing. After the August 25th security operation, Minzaya traveled to the refugee camps in Bangladesh to cover the crisis. But after a day and a half there, he was arrested for visa issues by the Bangladeshi police. He was released after 17 days. Yeah, so I, I had a bit of time to cover, like on my first day. So I arrived there in the, on the afternoon. I immediately went to the to the place where the uh, people are arriving. Like crossing uh, the river. Yeah, crossing the river, and I I got to like Technaf and like you know photographing the boats arriving and all that. Um, it's just like yeah, everybody looks totally exhausted. It was really like shocking and also sad um, but at the same time like, it's, it's kind of painful like you know knowing that these people are coming from your country you know, and yeah. this and then the majority and of the people like even including your friends like supporting this it's yeah. just so ugly you know and I don't want to be I don't want to be part of this so I you know but but at the same time I'm I, I try I, I because I'm a journalist and I'm a, I, I just want to use my work um, to show so I also, due to the sensitivity of this issue, I only just like to use my work um, instead of saying much. I just try to show in my pictures what's happening. And so, like with with uh, the Reuters reporter's case, even though they don't really like talking or acknowledging the Rohingya issue or using the word Rohingya, for example, do they still have support for Walon and Jasu doing journalism? So. At the very beginning of the case, when they were first arrested, many people um, were like, yeah, easily, you know, you know, were easily believing that, you know, well, these these guys were really like trying to get, you know, confident, like secret information from the police. They believe. Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People bought the story that you know that was, yeah, and then, um, yeah, so they like people believed that, and then they were kind of blaming the reporters for what they were trying to do. But yeah. uh, when the Reuters story was published, everybody was kind of shocked mm-hmm. um, because there were like really solid like evidence, um, the massacre and you know, the photos. And, and the story was for the first time also like verified, already verified by the government officials and yeah, the, the military for the first time ad- admitted uh, that they, you know, the, the, some of the security personnel like did this um, were involved uh, so, and then like that kind of changed you know some perception of the on the on the case of the reporters yeah do you think it could have yeah. also changed the perception that people have on the case of the Rohingya issue well yeah I mean like I think slowly and then more and more there was also the other biggest positive thing uh, was when this policeman, policeman uh, Moya yeah. who yeah, bravely like gave testimony of what actually. It's crazy. What, you know, so it's, after that happened, like many people who were kind of against the um, the, the the reporters, like you know, kind of change their perception, um, and yeah, which I mean, just should have been that way since the beginning. Yeah. yeah. During an April 20th hearing, a police officer Mo Yan Nai testified that a senior officer had ordered the police to trap Wallone by giving him secret documents. After the stunning admission, his wife and children were evicted from their home in police staff housing, 
Moya Nai was then sentenced to one year in prison, which he told reporters was to, quote, bar other police officers from telling the truth. Do you think there's sort of a way to change the perception of Burmese society? I think, you know, it's, it's just, I mean, I don't really blame even the people, like, you know, the majority of the people who uh, you know, blindly are anti-Rohingya or like you know anti like and uh, and kind of supporting this in a way. And I don't blame them because most of us like we we also must not forget like we were we the country has been closed for a long time and you know we grew up in an education system. Most of us like you know didn't have like proper education and the education system we had was like designed by the dictatorship and you know so. Like many people like all these years fought for democracy and human rights and you know but I think like we many people don't really also understand what's democracy and what are the human rights even the rights that we are supposed to have like as a basic so I, I this is one problem and so I think we really need to like change the education system like improve uh, for the future generations but at the same time like I'm also quite sad that there's not even much space for this issue to be like discussed about or debated about, there's you know I, I'm I don't have a problem with like people having different opinions, but it's just like there should be at least a space for people who know, um, you know the real situation to 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 be able to like speak out and you know so, but at the moment like there's not even a space to speak up because once you speak out about the issue, it's you you'll be either termed as a traitor of of the nationality or you know. Apart from that, like I think on the ground in Rakhine State, I, the only possible like solution would be like to have this sort of trust that they you know they had before between the communities, so that they can live together again. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's very difficult. Maybe it's almost impossible. But I, that's the only way you know because you need to have because they lived they lived along peacefully for many years, many decades and generations. And you know, like I, I think that there have to be a way to, you know, to repair, to, yeah, to repair this trust because otherwise, no matter how like how much security, like you know, no matter if the UN security forces come, no matter you know, it's it's it doesn't matter. It's just I think as long as the people don't trust among each other, I I think it's not it's going to be difficult. Thanks so much to my friends Minzaya Wu and Verena Hotso for speaking to me. How, how would you say your name, Verena? Hotso? Uh, okay, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> also, thanks to Anyang So, who helped with translating the quotes from the Reuters trial, and to Frontier Myanmar for lending me the equipment for this episode. Finally, thank you, thank you, thank you to Jared Ferry for the theme song at the beginning of the show. And Playing Me Out Right Now is a popular Burmese song that everyone in Yangon seems to know, Bo Ang Dain by Ma no. I'm Dean Hern Chen, signing off. Thanks so much for listening to Southeast Asia, etc. Mm-hmm.